Love this podcast? Support this show through the Acast Supporter feature. It's up to you how much you give and there's no regular commitment. Just hit the link in the show description to support now. Calling Tau City, turn on your radio. I know we had some words last time, but that was so long ago. I got your message. It was a little harsh, you know. It's still a little hard for me to hear. Please take it slow. Welcome to Starship Sofa, part of the District of Wonders network, featuring tales to terrify and far-fetched fables. Everyone has a story in the District of Wonders. Come and find yours. I'm tuning in to your transmissions. I'm waiting to be found and I'm building rockets. This is the Starship Sova. Everybody, welcome. Hello and welcome to show 570. I am your host, Tony C. Smith. Hello, everyone. I hope everyone is fine and dandy. Can you tell the big fella here has got a little bit of man flu? Uh, he knocked, knocked us for six. That's twice in about three weeks, man. That's just not right. It's not right, man. I'm not happy. Man, knock this. Funny enough, though, I got Christmas. Like the Christmas spell, it was the run-up before Christmas I had it. And then that was okay, Christmas was fine. And then I got New Year over, and it was just after New Year. And now I sound like a <laughs> blocked up everything, man. Anyway, because you know I'm a trooper, don't you? You know what I mean? It's just carry on. I don't... <laughs> the hot water bottle's ready. The, the duvet's all fluffed up for us. I've got me, me remote next to me telly. I'm going to watch some TV. <laughs> Right, I'll tell you what's coming in today's show. The main fiction is The Astronaut Tear by Jonathan Laidlaw. And it is our very own Amy H. Sturgis as well. We're looking back at genre history. That is all coming in today's show. I do hope you will stick around and enjoy it. And like I say, we're carrying on and Patreon is carrying on as well. We are at... 437, and I think we're at 437. Actually, no, sorry, we are at 438 today. And yes, last week we were at 437. And I want to give a big thank you to Jay. Is it Wyler? Jay? Jay Wyler? Wheeler? Jay, thank you so much. And a little bit of a plug there, Jim Devona. Jim upped his pledge as well. So big, huge thank you to you two. That would be just fantastic. Supporting the show. And Jim Support it a bit more. Hey, right then. So we'll kick off with the main fiction. Like I say, it's The Astronauts Tear by Jonathan Laidlaw. Jonathan Laidlaw grew up in the northwest of England near Sellafield Nuclear Power Plant, which regularly leaked. He has one good leg, one good eye, and one good ear. His publications include Donna at Strange Horizons, Obstruction Rate at Liminal Stories, Inundated at Farfetched Fables. He lives in Birmingham, UK. He tweets, and there's a little link there, because I can't read that out. And JonathanLaidlaw.com. JohnLaidlaw.com, should I say. There's a link there as well to Jonathan's site. Now, this story is narrated by our very own Nicola Seaton Clark. I'm saying our very own. Nicola was the host of Farfetch Fables. I'll give you a professional bio. Nicola is originally from South Africa, where she grew up in various small towns around the country, working as a professional actress full-time for 25 years. She has also spent her time being variously a jazz singer, waitress, bartender, and English trainer. Currently, she runs her voiceover company, Ofstima, with her actor husband, Peter. Peter's voice on these intros, just if you didn't know that. Yes, and spends her spare time attempting to raise her children into decent human beings and attending heavy metal concerts. There you go, Nicola. Well, I'm off to see on the 2nd of February, the Dead South are coming up to Newcastle, so I'm off to see them. Yes, a little Christmas present from my good wife. So, the Starship Sova is very proud to present... The Astronaut Tear by Jonathan Laidlow. Farron opened the door to the bailiffs and let them in. They pushed into the apartment wordlessly and began to itemise her former life, ticking boxes on clipboards while they opened drawers and rifled shelves. 
The last to enter was a wiry middle-aged woman who, with a kind smile, invited Farron to sign, thus demonstrating her understanding that her possessions were now the property of Ares II's creditors. She asked if the coffee in the pot also now belonged to the creditors. The coffee? the official lady replied. No, drink it up, hun. We'll take the pot when you're done. Farron filled her mug and then added her signature. It was just another piece of paper. She'd signed so many for Ares too, what was one more? Everything the bailiffs touched, they colonised. The framed prints of movie posters for Apollo 13 and the Martian had belonged to a different Farron, an earlier version, and so giving them up felt like nothing at all. The coffee had stewed, so she left it. Let them have the dirty mug. She picked up the holdall containing those personal items she was permitted to keep, then stopped to allow the boss lady to rifle through it. On command, she emptied her pockets. They patted her down and questioned her about the phone, registered to her brother, and the key to the car owned by her mother. They confiscated her old cassette Walkman with its headphones and her box of mixtapes. The male bailiff said, Vintage! You were cool, lady! He wrapped it up carefully in bubble wrap and added it to a box. The clothes and toiletries in her bag seemed to pass whatever test this had become, or maybe she had failed and just hadn't realised. She waited for them to manhandle the television out into their van, and then stepped outside. She'd been renting the apartment for a few years prior to Ares, so she was surprised to feel nothing as she handed over the key. It should have felt more like home, but then nothing did anymore. The battered Ford was parked down the hill, along the old dry stone wall of the village post office. She hoped they'd watch her go and think well of her, saying to each other, didn't cry, didn't beg, or try to smuggle her shit out. That's how you get repossessed with style. Classy. She stifled a sob on the steering wheel. How had she come from the dome in Australia to being homeless in the north of England? She recovered herself enough to start the engine and pull out into the road. In the rearview mirror, she could see the repo boss lady standing at the top of the hill. She couldn't see her former home, and for that, she was thankful. Farron's mum had encouraged her to sell all her belongings to friends and family, rather than let them be taken, but that wasn't how it worked. The bailiffs would have argued she didn't have the right to sell them, and then sued her friends to recover them. The car from her mother had been an act of kindness, as had the phone from her brother. Not so long ago, in the dome, she would have rejected their attempts to buy back her love. Now she was just happy to have a place to go. She set off to her mother's house and turned on the radio. She listened to a call-in show as she drove. The topic was the Ares II project. Most listeners couldn't understand how anyone had believed that a crowd-funded mission to land on Mars was possible or worth joining. Farron understood, though. A caller from Exeter said that the Ares people, people like Farron, were despicable and had joined the project knowingly. Farron snorted at the absurdity, inviting the radio to look around at her worldly possessions and then tell her she was a devious bitch who'd known exactly what she was getting into. She turned the radio off in anger, then immediately turned it back on. An internet caller from Missouri opined that the cover-up was massive and went as high as the secret world government. Well, I thank you for your charitable thoughts, mister, Farron said aloud to the empty car. Every day of her life before she joined Ares had felt like she was slowly being poisoned, and so she forced herself to listen every day to try to understand whether it was all a lie. The presenter interrupted the callers to go live to the siege in the Australian desert. Nothing had happened or changed. It was wasted airtime, really. They must surely be getting tired of Ares too by day forty. Farron braked to avoid a rogue sheep. It was drawn and frail and stumbled off the tarmac slowly. She slowed again to clatter over the cattle grid and then accelerated up the hill and onto the fells. They had always been desolate, but the blight made everything far worse. There were patches of lifeless soil where once there had been gorse. The phone rang, so she drew to a halt and flipped it open, saw that it was her brother and answered. Jeff, hi. Yeah, just gone. On my way to see Mum, I'm taking the shortcut over the fells. They talked for a few minutes 
but everything he said felt like a platitude that she'd already heard. Jeff's voice crackled as the signal degraded, and eventually she dropped the phone onto the passenger seat and set off again, concentrating on making each turn as the road meandered its way up, round, and over the mountain. She regretted not listening to the end of the phone-in, no matter how infuriating it would have been. It was dark when she crossed the cattle grid on the other side and entered the village where her mother lived. The old Ford spluttered as she changed into first gear, and she felt a pang of concern as she manoeuvred it tightly into a space near her mum's Land Rover. The car was her home now, she thought. Farron let herself in and found her mother in front of the television, watching the latest rolling updates from the dome. It was one thing for Farron to listen and watch obsessively. She'd been there, been part of Ares. It was quite another for her own mother to gawk. Mum, she said, can't we just live for five minutes without seeing what those cretins are saying? Her mum raised her eyebrows, then got up and kissed Farron on the cheek, asking in her soft Geordie accent, Tea, pet? While the sixty-year-old bustled around the kitchen, Farron turned off the sound on the television. Her mother returned with two mugs and a plate of biscuits. Did you ever meet that director fella, the one with the beard and the sexy voice? Mum. She had indeed met Doyle, repeatedly. Once her application to join the project had been accepted, she had been invited to pay for a seminar where Doyle had talked about the desert installation and the crew preparing to simulate life on Mars there. After that she was invited, for another fee, to an exclusive testing event where the crew for the second training and evaluation installation was to be chosen. She'd lived in the Martian simulation dome for three months, learning hydroponics, basic engineering, agriculture, and how to handle space technology. She was supposed to be in Alaska now, for another fee, of course. Her contributions had raised her to the astronaut tier. In keeping with the crowdsourcing ethos of the project, Doyle had pitched in with the recruits and sponsors. He spent weeks in the dome, venturing outside only to attend to corporate business, procurement meetings with companies like Lockheed and Virgin Galactic and the like. She'd come to think of him as a mentor. He'd often taken the same work details as her, and her posting in the vacuum survival team had meant they worked side by side. Her mum might have thought he was dishy, but Farron's relationship with him had always been purely professional. What she'd admired had been his leadership of the project, and what she'd really approved of had been his vision of the people bootstrapping themselves into space, independent of national interests. Farron thought the harassment charges were trumped up, and the warrant for his arrest a case of blatant assanging. The biscuits were home-cooked, the tea reassuring. Mum filled her in on her cousins and the various illnesses of her aunts and uncles, Farron responded with innocuous childhood memories of the cousins, once, twice, and thrice removed, whom she barely knew as adults. The coverage of Ares II moved to aerial shots of the compound, then studio discussion of the fire and the first shootout. Farron picked up the remote and turned on the subtitles. The fire was at the mysterious Silver Donut building. She'd never had clearance. You had to be on the mission specialist tier to get inside there. They cut to an investigative journalist, with shots of the Alaskan compound, unfinished and deserted. There was another silver structure, this one incomplete, and federal investigators were shown climbing over the half-built walls with clipboards and flashlights. While her mom droned on and on about the medical complications currently affecting Uncle Somebody or other, Farron took stock. She'd been convinced that six months in the cold in a simulated space habitat would eventually take her off-world. Instead... She was back in her mother's house and the country she'd been trying to leave since she was a child. A British scientist came on screen to offer an expert viewpoint. She explained that the designs for the interplanetary vehicle that, it now transpired, had never been constructed, were fundamentally flawed and the craft would have killed every astronaut upon takeoff if they'd ever had the funds to build it. The money taken from Martianauts like Farron had vanished, and now they were liable for Ares' debts through some quirk of their contracts. Doyle had been in regular contact with everyone in the group right up until the media expose and the ensuing raids. Would he get back in touch? She heard the back door, and then her brother's voice. Hello? Fozzie Bear here yet? I'm here, Juicy, she called back. Then, why are you bothering your dear old mum on this fine northern evening? Jeff stood in the doorway 
rain dripping from his long white hair. Are you having a laugh? he replied. Looking for my poor destitute sister, I'll have you know. He sat down and let Mum scurry around making more tea. Jeff was older by three years. He'd never been a particularly protective sibling, offering her wisdom and perspective when she needed it, but never rushing to impose. He had, however, been strongly opposed to Ares too. He'd identified with their goals but hated their secrecy and the personality cult that followed Doyle everywhere. He had scoffed when she talked about making the application and refused to help out when she made the personal video required of all applicants. He'd said that space travel was not a TV talent show, nor should anyone sell the rights to such a program. As she gradually got more involved with the meetings and the levels, they'd clashed repeatedly and eventually ceased to speak. Since the day she'd called him from LAX and begged for help to get home, Jeff had treated her with kid gloves, helping where he could, like getting the phone, and he'd looked after her flat all that time she was away. Now he offered more assistance. If you don't want to stay here, you can come over and take our couch, sis. He owned a bungalow with his wife in the village. It was cramped with the two children, but had always felt like a refuge to Farron. Even when they weren't speaking, she'd visited her nieces and hung out with Sarah. It felt like home. But it wasn't. And the thought of living in the same village as Mum and everybody they'd grown up with filled her with dread. Sleeping in the astronaut bunks in the cool, filtered air of the dome had been much more soothing. She needed to go. To go far away. If not Mars, then as far as she could manage. She jangled the keys of the Ford in her pocket. I'll stay here tonight and maybe come see you tomorrow, but after that I'm, I'm out of here. The roads are safe again, apparently, and, and Mum gave me wheels, so... Well, my culture is a your culture, he said, with a smile that was really concern. Oh, hey, did you see this? He brandished a printout. Jeff thought of himself as an old-school white knight, and he was always trying to hack things, discover what was behind the encryption. Somebody from Ares has something going on. It hasn't leaked yet, I just track these things. Geek, she said, and took the paper he held out. A photograph. Black and white, grainy. A satellite image, maybe. The rocks and grassland of what had to be a British valley. Standing in the rain, a bulky ex-NASA spacesuit reaching down into a stream. The name Doyle was spelled out in the font they'd all voted for when crowdsourcing everything was a novelty. Farron had even attached the nameplate to that suit. Farron spent a few more days at her mother's house and allowed her to fuss, which meant that she received many cups of tea and frequent homilies on finding a good job and making no more trouble. Embarrassed but not yet ready to talk, she ventured out to the library to use a public and anonymous internet connection. After setting up a temporary encrypted node, she ran the background on the satellite photo through a series of image searches, cross-referencing against open-access geolocation directories. Eventually, she had some GPS coordinates an anonymous valley in Yorkshire. This was doable. The exact spot was off-road, but she could take the car as far as it would go and then hike the rest if she had to. She deserved an explanation. She'd been travelling between the Australian Dome and the Alaskan Bunker when her ticket had been cancelled with no explanation. She'd been stranded in L.A., watching the authorities move on the compound on the airport lounge TV. And now this. Was the mission still on? She drove to the supermarket and filled the boot of the car with dried and canned food, a cheap sleeping bag, a tent, and lots of bottled water. She charged it to Jeff and promised to pay him back. She didn't tell him what it was for, but over the phone she just said, Doyle. She hoped the line wasn't bugged, but her brother had always been good at end-to-end -end crypto. She lit out before dawn, heading for the A66 and Newcastle instead of the more direct route to Yorkshire. She had a reputation for aggressive driving, so she deliberately drove like her instructor had wanted her to, like Jeff the family man, so that she wasn't pulled over. There was a service area that looked down on the River Tyne and the burned-out ruins of Newcastle, so she stopped to rest. She'd seen no obvious signs that she had a tail, and she didn't think a drone would have the range to follow her. If they had enough clout to use satellite tracking, well, there was nothing she could do about it. She wasn't sure whether the bailiffs would pursue her for money or leads on Doyle. Some people thought the repo company had been working for the government, and it was odd that the British authorities hadn't yet questioned her. She called Jeff, just to make sure he'd talk to Mum. 
After pleasantries and reassurance that Mum knew she was safe, he said, There was a bit more on the dark net. Conspiracy nuts, to be fair, but there's a buzz about Doyle, so be careful. Then, Did you know the head guns, Foz? Don't be silly. I was going to be an astronaut, not a space marine, she laughed. Of course, they'd all had weapons training. Daily target practice in the secret caves under the dome and weekly asymmetrical tactical response through the arable zones. She wanted to tell him, but the words would not come. There were no words for the way Ares too had changed her life. If you need me, I'm sending a digital key. You can get a message to me without being traced. Use it if you have to. She laughed it off, but he sent the key anyway. She memorized it, certain she wouldn't need it. She looked down on the quarantined ruins of the city, desolate but no longer burning. The daily radiation forecast had been constant throughout her childhood. The blight that threw the country into recession had started here. The eventual clampdown, evacuation and quarantine had brought the first realization that she needed to escape. She ate, drank and then set off for Yorkshire without looking back. A couple of hours later, she ran out of road. The GPS had taken her to abandoned grazing fields, but the location lay ahead, so she opened the gate and drove on. It was a dull and overcast afternoon, and the thin grass was slick with rain. Several times she lost control of the little car, churning up the wet soil and sliding down the valley. But she got further than she thought she would, and she only abandoned it when she reached the stream, with just half a mile to go. She put on her pair of Wellingtons, then locked the car and waded into the stream, splashing against the current. It wasn't deep, and she remembered paddling in the rock pools at Allenby with Jeff when she was a kid, and the world was very different. Before the accident at the Scottish nuclear site, before the blight, before Ares too promised her a beginning on another planet. She rounded the corner, and there it was. The spacesuit. Walking in the water about a hundred yards in front of her, just as in the photograph, it seemed to be digging or fishing for something under the water. On the other side of the bank, she saw a mixture of tents, mobile homes and Winnebagos all clustered around a long, silver caravan. All around her, she could feel and hear a throbbing hum emanating from that last caravan. A sequence of five thunderous pulsations startled her, but she kept on walking. Doyle? she said to the spacesuit. It wobbled slowly to face her, moving like astronauts in the old footage from the moon landings. She'd worn one like that and knew how heavy it was under normal gravity. It was one of the ex-NASA designs that she'd worked with at the training camp. It raised its hand, wielding a soil sampling tool, but she could not find it threatening. Her training told her it was meant for low or zero gravity and she could easily outrun it. Doyle? she said again. Then, what the hell, man? The gold-mirrored visor retracted, and a woman stared back at her from Doyle's spacesuit. She had short dreadlocks, and her face was decorated with tattoos. Everyone in Australia had been so well-groomed and clean-cut, so right stuff. Who was this, and why was Doyle allowing her to do Farron's job? What the fuck is going on here? Where is Doyle? Then they were all around her, pointing weapons. She carefully raised her hands. Behind them, she caught sight of her bearded leader stepping out of one of the caravans. They locked Farron in a camper van that was joined to the silver thing by a thick trunk of cabling. The motley group all displayed a similar fervour, ignoring her demands for an explanation, but speaking calmly among themselves as though there was a secret they all shared. She recognised one of them, a guy called Caspian whom she'd always dismissed as a hipster, She'd never hung out with him because he'd only reached one of the lower technical tiers. She was outraged that he was here. Doyle acknowledged her with a nod as they led her past, as if to tell them she was a fellow traveller, potentially a co-conspirator. His hair, once groomed, was long and ragged. His face was lined, but it was still the kind of face that won over investors, the kind that attracted followers and disciples. The camp was a far cry from the polished Ares compounds and domes. The collection of battered vehicles and aged habitats bore no relation to the branded and logoed equipment in the desert. Those had all been leased, she now knew from the expose on the news. Furthermore, the scientists on TV had said there'd have been no way to lift so much mass into orbit. 
They had claimed that all those items of equipment were just props to fool investors and members. The valley was barren, the grass short and blighted, just like her mum's home on the other coast. The hum of the silver caravan was audible inside the campervan, and it made her restless, particularly the thundering, which cycled every twenty minutes. She paced, and then sat on the uncomfortable sofa, and then paced some more. Her phone had no signal. Either they were in a coverage dead zone, or the cell towers had been disabled somehow. There was one last message from Jeff on there. Foz, bailiffs came from Mum's house, some legal shenanigans about the proceeds of a crime, but it's nonsense. We're on it. Stay safe. She felt bad for her mother's house, but it hadn't been where she'd felt at home for a very long time. Doyle came to her a few hours later. He wore an ex-NASA one-piece and seemed older, haggard and dirty. He used to wear such sharp suits, she thought. Farron, how did you find us? he said. She lost her composure and snapped. Where did you go? What did you do to my life? I was on my way to Alaska when the ticket was cancelled. I had to call my family. Do you know how humiliating that was? He stepped back and chuckled, looking at her with the coldest of eyes. The mission is more important than any of us. We taught you that. The doubters are trying to take everything. You bastard, she said in disbelief. It was all a lie. All the money's gone and now they're going through our accounts to get it back. Did you know that? He sat down and pulled out a hip flask. She shook her head, but he waited until eventually she took it and gulped down the cheap vodka. It's something else, Farron. Something important. That thing outside, we couldn't tell anyone. So what is it? She retorted. I can't tell you that, yet. Stay with us, become one of us again, and then you'll find out. Trust me. Again? Sod off. Think about it. You were one of our very best, but you only made it as far as the astronaut tier. She fumed, for astronaut was the most prestigious level available to the recruits, and she'd struggled in every way to reach it. Ares, too, had woken a need in her, and when its promise to meet that need had proved to be false, she'd been left empty and desperate. Doyle's offer scratched that itch. She wanted to leave this blighted land behind, but talking to Doyle reminded her of how much she'd enjoyed being part of something bigger than herself, of how good it felt to be in the inner circle instead of out in the cold. Now she could be again. He added one last temptation. Work with us here and you could join the European tier, he said and his smug smile showed that he knew she would find another level impossible to resist. She slept, fitfully, and then in the morning, Caspian unlocked the door and invited her to join them on a scavenging trip. Seeing him made Farron sick with jealousy, sick that she was now excluded from something to which he still belonged, and so she meekly went with him and played her part. She worked with Doyle's crew for a week, they foraged supplies from some of the abandoned farms near the valley. Then she helped to check the cabling that ran to the mysterious silver trailer. The tasks she'd completed at astronaut camp in Australia proved vital, for she knew how to maintain machines that she didn't really understand. Once, NASA had trained scientists and pilots to live and work in space. Farron wondered whether the lunar astronauts had learned their systems by rote, just as she had in the desert. They were supervised by a watchful older woman with a shaven head and a doctorate, possibly two, named Professor Curtis. She barely acknowledged Farron. Their only conversation was when she demanded Farron's phone. Farron handed it over without a word or a thought for Jeff or Mum. Caspian knew little more than Farron, but he shared water, showed her the supplies and helped her make friends with some of the others. After a few nights, she was welcomed around the campfire for a sing-song, where every melody tried to incorporate the rhythm of the mysterious machine. She found that the others had all worked at different locations and had risen to different levels based on their abilities and their funds. None had risen to as high a tier as Farron, and yet here they were. At first she felt heartbroken that Doyle had invited them onto this new secret and exclusive tier, but not her. Then she made it her goal to achieve it, herself. Curtis and Doyle were thick as thieves, but Doyle didn't speak to Farron much. 
He nodded as he passed, sometimes clasping her shoulder or arm. She wished he wouldn't treat her like his love-struck ex-girlfriend. She didn't feel that her behaviour warranted it, and she didn't want the others thinking they'd ever had a relationship of that nature. It cheapened her, and she was quickly coming to believe in this mission again. It felt... right, as it had before, whatever it was. Vehicles better equipped for the terrain arrived in the night, driven by the girl with the tattooed face, and then they spent time joining three more silver trailers to the first, until eventually they had a donut, like the one in Australia. Some began calling it the Toroid, but Curtis referred to it simply as the engine, and that was the name that stuck. They moved into a new phase of testing, and Farron started to show them how adept at such work she had become in the habitat in the desert. They might have been in a North Yorkshire wasteland, but it stood in for a hostile space environment quite acceptably. She ran tests with a battered old laptop and found that the suits still held their oxygen, their heating and cooling systems were nominal, and their radiation shielding intact. The laptop was the type they'd used in the dome, encased in thick rubber and allegedly vacuum-proof. A few days later, Curtis walked stiffly from her Winnebago to the fire and said, We begin a new phase of the project tomorrow. As she turned to leave, she took Farron to one side and told her, Doyle is really proud of how you've joined us. He wanted me to give this back to you. She handed back the cell phone, fully charged. It had even miraculously found a signal. The phone wouldn't ring out, but then she wasn't sure whether this was a test, and she did not want to break their trust. Nevertheless, she hooked it up to the laptop and used the data connection to scour the net for news about Australia. The siege was over. Many members were dead, imprisoned or in hiding. The authorities across the globe continued to swoop on the poor idiots like her who'd funded and joined what they were now describing as a terrorist space cult. There were lurid claims of orbital weapons platforms and blackmail demands. There'd also been more raids on the families of members, and while there was no news of Mum and Jeff, she shivered at footage of bailiffs and black SUVs breaking down doors and confiscating belongings. What had Ares II done that was so wrong? They'd only dreamed of taking the solar system for people, not governments. The idea that someone as ordinary as Farron could have been one of the first to colonise a new world had driven her this far. And she realised that her own commitment was more important than ever, now that the state machinery was painting them as criminals and closing them down. Farron felt newly wedded to her cause, zealous to find out what they were working towards. Did they still have a secret launch site somewhere? She hoped they did. Doyle drove into the valley at six with a trailer of cables. He instructed his followers to run them through the camp to a series of outlets on the engine, and Farron finally caught a glimpse inside the main silver caravan. The interior was lined with mirrors, and so she saw a vertigo-inducing reflection. The dizzy sensation reminded her of zero-gravity training in the Ares II jet. She'd been humbled by the reality of it, as though before she'd been somehow lacking in substance. They had cleared the rocks and flattened out the ground about a hundred yards from the engine, and they laid the cables to that area. Curtis brought out one final piece of equipment, something none of them had seen before. It was a semicircular object, also mirrored, about two metres in diameter and a foot tall, lashed to a standard British power in-out setup with brown parcel tape. It winked and glistened with curious lights. Looking at it induced the same sense of queasy inversion that she'd felt earlier, so she put her head down and resumed work on the power and data lines. Once the cables were laid and connected, Doyle and Curtis began to test them with a laptop hooked up to the generator. The early evening brought drizzle, and the two leaders worked on in the rain. Farron sat around the fire with the others. There was no more camaraderie, no more singing. The engine has stopped, she said eventually. It was true, but nobody reacted except Caspian, who got up and walked back to his tent. Doyle joined them and ordered Farron to accompany him to his Winnebago. She obeyed without question. Perhaps it was time to join the European tier, she thought. As they walked, he called for Caspian and the three of them went inside. Two of the spacesuits were laid out, ready, and she helped Doyle into the bulky and dirty NASA suit. She had personally ensured its viability and she was pleased that he respected her talents. Help Farron into the second unit, Doyle said to Caspian, and she glowed in the warmth of Doyle's approval. Caspian lowered the helmet over her head and leaned in. Don't worry, 
he whispered. They stumbled carefully back outside and waddled slowly to where Curtis waited with one of the laptops and the new machine. Curtis pressed a key on the laptop. The air above the new device began to shimmer, to flicker like an old television set. Farron saw herself reflected in the static, a great galumphing, mouldy, off-white lummox outlined in the snowstorm of white noise. The hum and the banging returned, and it sounded as though someone were knocking at a door. She gazed at her image, transfixed, for she was both subject and object. Then Doyle walked straight past and into the distortion field. He vanished. And then the grey sky lit up as though it was morning. She gazed upwards and it was filled with silent black drones like airborne spiders hovering over the camp, their spotlights illuminating everything. Sirens began to wail and she saw black uniforms sweep down into the valley, torches wavering as they made their way over the uneven ground. In the lead, she thought she saw the officious lady who had accompanied the bailiffs. Professor Curtis abandoned Farron and Caspian, leaving them by the laptop. Farron grabbed his wrist awkwardly and said, Open me a link to this location, and reeled off Jeff's key. Caspian quickly entered it on the laptop. The connection opened, and she snatched the computer, activated the oxygen regulator on her suit, and stepped into the white noise after Doyle, trailing data and power cables behind her. It was the only thing left she could do. She closed her eyes as she pushed through her distorted other. It felt as though she had lost her balance, as though she was stuck in the moment just before falling. Then she was through staggering to regain her footing on unfamiliar ground. She opened her eyes and blinked in disbelief. She felt lighter, sensed the heater in her suit kick in and heard the radiation monitor beeping furiously. At her feet, strange red and grey rocks on a vast expanse of ice, glistening in the light. To her left, Doyle. He stood still, swaying unsteadily. Dominating the horizon were the coloured stripes of Jupiter, the great red storm spot visible just on the edge of the skyline, seeming only a few miles walk along the icy wasteland in front of her, but in actuality thousands of miles away. The sun was a bright star in a black sky. She triggered her radio and found Doyle praying. She'd not realised he had any spiritual impetus— Ares, too, had been her own sole authority, yet, now that they were millions of miles further than Mars, Jupiter's shadow seemed a far higher god. After the prayer, he said, I lied, Farron. It's not the European tier, it's the Europa tier, the highest level a member can reach. So Ares, too, was always a cover story? She replied. That's amazing. We're in space, Doyle. Space! She was so happy she began to cry. It was all possible. She could leave it all behind. He turned to her, huffing and puffing as he adjusted to the ultralight gravity, a tenth of that back home. That's right, he said. Our hackers found the plans for the engine in an old Soviet dossier. They cross-referenced it with NASA and that's what we spent the money on. The theoretical stuff is all good and that's why we think they shut us down. So... We were never going to Mars. Comprehension set in. It didn't matter where they went in the solar system, just that they were going. It would be impossible to stop them now. That's correct. A Jovian satellite. Europa. We can open up the outer planets. Farron started to laugh. <laughs> they really had no idea what you were doing? <laughs> this is brilliant! So much better than Mars, he added. Absolutely! She wanted to caper and dance, impossible though it was in the spacesuit. She felt vindicated and justified. It was all worth it. Doyle said, Just think what we can sell this for. Portal technology, can you believe it? Farron thought she'd misheard. What we can sell this for? As she realised what he'd said, she felt a lump rising in her throat. She looked at him and all she could think about was the wasted time in the desert, the fundraising, the selection videos, losing everything, her mum's house, the police swarming into the valley, the sacrifices she had made to make space travel possible for herself and other futureless people. Sell? What about opening up the planets for humanity? What about the crowdsourced dream?
He laughed. And his teeth chattered. Their gear was old and she wasn't sure it was rated for these radiation levels. Red warning lights blinked on Doyle's chest panel. Come on, Farron. We can get all the money back. Look at what we've done. It's the Jupiter system. The water on Europa alone can provide oxygen and fuel to keep exploring further. We'll be the richest people alive. <laughs> the feds out there, I called them. You and I are only here because I wanted to be the first man in the Jovian system. You called them? She spat back at him. I thought they followed me. Why would you contact them after everything they've done to us? You're the first woman on Europa, Farron. Think of what that will be worth. They can't arrest us now. We're already celebrities. <laughs> the laptop was still in her hand. And despite all of her doubts, its space-proofing seemed to have worked, for the data and power were still live. She roughly pushed at the keys until she hit enter, opening the stream to Jeff. She hoped he'd be able to take any plans and files from the laptop, and then she dropped it and ran at Doyle. She ran as fast as anyone can in a spacesuit and bowled him over. The burst of activity set off every warning light and alarm on both their suits. Leaning on top of him, she picked up a rock. I believed in this, you monster. You made me believe in this. How can you fucking sell it? She slammed the rock down, smashing it into her reflection on the golden visor until it cracked and he grew still. She struggled off him and sat down her back to the beautiful gas giant. She looked at the iridescent portal. Should she go back or wait for them to follow? How many more spacesuits did they have? How long before they came through and spread out to the stars? Which government would be the first? And would they care that she'd marked their discovery with a blood sacrifice? She doubted it. Her only hope was that Jeff would find the plans and do a Snowden with them. Otherwise, the solar system would become everything she hated about Earth. All strength left her. She turned, feeling cold as her suit began to fail and marvelled at the landscape before her. The barren, ice-bound surface of Europa was like nothing she'd trained for, and yet it was everything she needed. She walked carefully and slowly across the white expanse towards the horizon and Jupiter's watchful eye, leaving Doyle's body and the portal far behind. And there you go, Ryan Reynolds here from Mint Mobile. With the price of just about everything going up during inflation, we thought we'd bring our prices down. So to help us, we brought in a reverse auctioneer, which is apparently a thing. Mint Mobile Unlimited Premium Wireless. Ready to get 30, 30, ready to get 30, ready to get 20, 20, 20, ready to get 20, 20, ready to get 15, 15, 15, 15, just 15 bucks a month. So give it a try at mintmobile.com slash switch. $45 up front for three months plus taxes and fees. Promote for new customers for limited time. Unlimited more than 40 gigabytes per month. Slows. Full terms at mintmobile.com. Thank you to Jonathan. Jonathan, thank you so much. That's just amazing. Oh, man, thank you. And Nick, like, it's just lovely to just hear you there. You know what I mean? Just hear you there in the in the sphere, as we say. Nick, I hope you're well. Have a fantastic 2019. And I hope you, you raise them kids into decent human beings. You know what I mean? I hope you try. <laughs> now it's our Amy. Yes, our Amy H. Sturgis. We're looking back at genre history. Amy, I hope you have a fantastic 2019 there, lass. I really do. Sending thoughts, hugs, and best wishes, and all sorts are coming over the pond there. Hello, and Happy New Year, my friends. It is time for another look back into genre history. And I would like to start the new year with a book recommendation. It is a brand new work of scholarship on genre history. It is astounding. John W. Campbell, Isaac Asimov, Robert A. Heinlein, L. Ron Hubbard, and the Golden Age of Science Fiction by Alec Navala Lee. That was published at the end of 2018 by HarperCollins. The author has genre cred. He has three novels, including The Icon Thief, and his stories have been published in Analog Science Fiction and Fact, Lightspeed, The Year's Best Science Fiction. He's also published nonfiction in places like the Los Angeles Times, The Daily Beast, Salon, and Long Reads. Just a personal note, I was fortunate a couple of years ago to be on a panel with Navala Lee at a convention. And for the life of me, I can't remember if it was 
RavenCon in Richmond, Virginia. I think that's probably the more likely. Or possibly Con Carolinas in Charlotte, North Carolina. Those happened fairly close together. But at any rate, it was a panel about genre history. And between chatting with him before the panel began and then hearing his comments during the panel, I was so impressed. I made a note to myself that I've carried around for the last couple of years, reminding myself to watch for this book when it came out because I wanted to read it. That was long, long before the five-star advanced reviews came out, but they came out and so have a lot of other five-star reviews since the book was published, and it definitely earns the praise that it has received, this book. First, let me give you a couple of quick quotes here that sort of set up the thesis, the argument of this book. So I am now quoting from Astounding. Science fiction might have evolved into a viable art form with or without Campbell, but his presence meant that it happened at a crucial time, and his true legacy lies in the specific shape that it took under his watch. Campbell had wanted to be an inventor or a scientist, and when he found himself working as an editor instead, he redefined the pulps as a laboratory for ideas— improving the writing, developing talent, and handing out entire plots for stories. America's future, by definition, was unknown, with a rate of change that would only increase. To prepare for this coming acceleration, he turned science fiction from a literature of escapism into a machine for generating analogies, which is why, in the 60s, he renamed the magazine, that is, astounding, Analog. The author goes on to talk about Campbell after World War II, and says, quote, His ultimate goal was to turn his writers and readers into a new kind of human being, exemplified by, quote, the competent man, end quote, who would lead in turn to the Superman. As the atomic age dawned, nothing less than humanity's survival seemed at stake, and Campbell teamed up with one of his own authors, L. Ron Hubbard, to achieve this transformation in the real world. But None of it went according to plan. End quote. All right, so what you have here is the story of Astounding and its editor, John W. Campbell, rising to eminence as the decider, the setter of the agenda for science fiction, and bringing authors like Robert Heinlein and Isaac Asimov and A.E. Van Vogt and Elsprad de Camp into the limelight, developing them as the voices of the Campbellian Revolution. But the second half of the story is largely like watching an intellectual train wreck in a lot of ways, as Campbell marries his fortune to and squanders his reputation for L. Ron Hubbard. If you're playing the Which of These Doesn't Fit game, L. Ron Hubbard is the character, if you will, who stands out, and he comes across in the book, and I think justifiably so, as really a con man from the word go, long before there was Dianetics, long before there was Scientology. And he viewed science fiction and science fiction readers as tools to get where he wanted. And it's a compelling but also very frustrating and heartbreaking read to see how Campbell became a part of all of that and really lost the connection to and credibility with the genre he helped to shape and the writers whose works, whose careers he helped to make. There are two pithy quotes by Heinlein in his correspondence that jumped out at me that might season flavor my points here. One, to Hubbard himself, you're an authentic hero. Here he's talking about Hubbard's military service, which, by the way, Hubbard lied about. You're an authentic hero, even though a phony gentleman. I'll give you money to get you out of a jam, but I don't want you in my house. That says a lot. <laughs> but Heinlein also captured, I think, the frustration a lot of Campbell's writers felt toward the end. He wrote... I wish John would just let it be an ordinary friendship without insisting that his friends be his disciples. All of these near-mythic figures 
such important giants in the formation of the golden age of science fiction, not just Campbell and Hubbard, but also Heinlein and Asimov and others really come through as three-dimensional, real human beings here with great talent, but also great foibles as well. And both their weaknesses and their strengths had tremendous ripple effects across the genre. You will be able to find many very insightful and detailed reviews of this book, but I'd like to point out, if I may, a few things that really struck me reading it. This is a period, and these are authors I teach in my courses on science fiction, and I can already tell you I'm going to be going back to this as a resource the next time that I teach, because it does a very skillful job of showing the interactions between these individuals and showing how they sort of fed off of each other and created a community and a dialogue that still has tremendous impact today. Okay, so a few things that struck me in particular. First, even in, perhaps especially in, the Golden Age, women were a part of science fiction. I'm not just talking about the great writers, although there most certainly were great writers. The Judith Merrills and C.L. Moores and Lee Brackett's and James Tiptree Jr.'s. But there were also women behind the scenes, and this book makes a point of bringing these women's stories back into the picture. Uh, Donia Campbell, Leslin Heinlein, who was Heinlein's collaborator as well as editor, and most importantly, Kay Tarrant, who was, technically speaking, the assistant editor for Campbell, but was really half of the entire astounding project. And yet, for all this... Campbell could be very dismissive of women, and it's really amazing when you think of the opportunities he missed. For example, he believed his readers capable of making the leap of imagination to see the world through, or at least empathize with, the eyes of an alien character who was as smart as human beings, but whose intellectual processes worked completely differently truly alien. And yet, he turned down work by Samuel R. Delaney, one of the most important science fiction authors of the 20th century, because he did not think his readers could put themselves in the place of a black protagonist. A different species, sure. A different race, not on your life. That's just really hard to swallow. Another takeaway, not as much a focus, but certainly present in the text, is the fact that fandom, science fiction fandom, has been contentious from the word go. And the description of the first world science fiction convention, pitting the new fandom against the Futurians in particular, gives ample illustration for this. You get fans together, eventually someone's going to call someone else a dictator, people are going to try to get thrown out. People are going to be thrown out. The police may be called. You get the picture. It is interesting to see the parallel paths of Campbell and his crew versus the Futurians, led by people like Donald Walheim. One side produced writers and fans who wanted to be and often became writers. And the other side was a training ground for later editors of science fiction. The contentiousness, okay, not surprising, but the sense of community, on the other hand, really impressive. A through line in the narrative is how many people felt invested in the science fiction project, believed in it, believed in the other people in it, and were conscious of the fact that science fiction could change lives and could cultivate rational thinking and extrapolation and a view toward a future that might be more hopeful than the present day. So, Navala Lee's overall argument is really compelling. The narrative is fascinating, very well-researched and documented, thank goodness. I do love me some good endnotes. And it's very moving, in a way, to read about individuals who were all, in some sense or another, outcast who all came to science fiction for particular reasons, with particular 
things they were hoping to get from and looking for in the genre. It makes for great reading. But some of my favorite parts are the little details. And I want to throw a couple out that particularly I found interesting. One is an anecdote that shows how great Campbell could be, in a sense, despite himself. Campbell wrote over and over again about the need for heroes, the fact that science fiction writers wanted heroism. They didn't want anti-heroes. And he wanted to tell a particular kind of story. And yet, he as an editor was better than that. And an example I give in class about his, his impact on the genre is from The Cold Equations by Tom Godwin, which was first published in Astounding in 1954. It's been called over and over again one of the best science fiction stories before 1965, sort of of that golden age. The science fiction writers of America even selected it as one of the science fiction Hall of Fame works. And it's a story, if you haven't read it, I'll give you a quick explanation. It takes place on an emergency dispatch ship headed for a frontier planet with desperately needed medical supplies that mean life or death for the planet's inhabitants. The EDS is stripped down to basics. It has no more fuel than is needed. It is going to be there as fast as possible. And once the pilot takes off, he discovers that a young girl has stowed away on board, even though she saw the uh, unauthorized personnel keep out sign. She thinks that the only repercussion of her actions is that she'll have to pay a fine, and she's willing to do that. She wants to go to this frontier planet because her brother is there dying, and she wants to see him. Well, little does she know, they don't have extra fuel. They can't take on any extra weight. This wasn't a question of paying a fine and getting a slap on the wrist. This is a life-or-death scenario. And when Godwin submitted the story to Campbell, he wanted to have his cake and eat it, too. He wanted to set up this terribly dire situation, but then salvage a happy ending. And Campbell, despite his desire to have heroes, to have supermen, to have these kinds of hopeful endings, he made Godwin rewrite and rewrite and rewrite that story until the girl had to die. Because, in fact, the science of it all did not allow you to avoid the repercussions of the choices of the characters. And even though the girl made that choice from the best of intentions, the fight between personal sentiment and the laws of physics isn't much of a fight at all. Physics is going to win. And given all that we discover about Campbell and about Campbell's ideas, I think this is a, an example of Campbell making a writer better, a story better, and in a sense, despite himself, showing his truest gifts as an editor. An example in the opposite direction is Campbell accepting Dune and being well aware of the genius of Dune and even asking Frank Herbert why Paul's little sister Elia needed to die. Did she have to die? Campbell's comment made the author rethink his decision. And, of course, as we know, Frank Herbert made the choice to keep Aaliyah alive and that made a huge difference in the Dune series. But when the second work, Dune Messiah, was ready, Campbell discovered, in a way, that he had misread Dune, that he read Dune as a story of a superhero, a superman, and he really didn't understand or like or want the way that Herbert deconstructed that notion in Dune Messiah which, for the record, is something that makes Dune Messiah, in my humble opinion, pretty fantastic. Tony, I'm looking at you. But Campbell could only go so far outside of his comfort zone, outside of the parameters he thought science fiction should operate within, and so he passed on Dune Messiah. And don't get me started about the ongoing saga of Ray Bradbury trying to break into and be published in Astounding and never making it. Okay, I 
feared that I would just ramble and ramble here. So I'm going to rein myself in. Go, go get this book. I'm going to end with a couple of the final thoughts by the author. The book closes with the death of the last man standing. In this case, it is Isaac Asimov. Novala Lee sums up his story this way, with so much wild speculation. Some of it was bound to be correct, even if the man at the helm, that being Campbell, had often steered in the wrong direction. Yet if the future, from atomic energy to the space race to the computer age, which would threaten the existence of the very magazines from which it had emerged, felt like science fiction, it was largely because the prophecy had fulfilled itself— it had inspired countless readers to enter the sciences, where they set themselves, consciously or not, to enacting its vision. Space, which had begun as a backdrop for stock adventure stories, came to seem like humanity's destiny. Campbell and his authors had been the men and women who sold the moon. They hadn't predicted the future. They had made it. A great ending point, I think, if you are interested in the golden age of science fiction. This is a book for you. And with that, I will end my recommendation of Astounding, John W. Campbell, Isaac Asimov, Robert A. Heinlein, L. Ron Hubbard, and the Golden Age of Science Fiction by Alec Novala Lee. I look forward to joining you again soon with something completely different when we take another look back into genre history together. Thank you. Hey, Guimi, thank you, Lars. Thank you very much. Hope your mum's well and everybody over there on the other side of the pond. Right then, that is it. That's today's show. Tucked up and put to bed. I hope you enjoyed it. I'm off to go and suck a fisherman's. Hey! Until next time, I'd just like to say good night from me. This presentation has been brought to you by the District of Wonders Network, dedicated to podcasting the finest genre fiction. You can learn more about the District of Wonders and their many literary productions at their website, www.districtofwonders.com. Thank you for listening. I don't get out much. I've barely left the ground. I'm tuning in to your transmissions. I'm hooning, waiting to be found. And I'm building rockets. Pointing them to the moon But the work is going slowly It won't get to you anytime soon Can you reach me? Is my signal getting through? Turn on your radio I want to talk to you This signal's going light speed By the time I get my say I might already be on to you and on my way But you're so far from here And at best I'm moving slow So I'm waiting on your call at home with nowhere to go Can you reach me? Is my signal getting through? Turn on your radio I want to talk to you I want to talk to you Myself on a radio wave, I might get to you someday. If books were rocket ships, I'd need only the will to fly. I'm still building word by word, and I'll get out there by and by. I'll get out there by and by. I'll get out there. I'll get out there by and by. I'll get out there.